the following episode of the DJ Bob Show was recorded before the Writers Guild of America and SAG After Strike began. We and our guests fully support the strike and the efforts of the Writers Guild of America writers and SAG After actors fighting for fair wages and protections. Hey, I'm Bob Runkle, and for as long as I can remember, I've loved pop culture. Despite the challenges I've faced in my life, pop culture has always been there for me. I love talking to people and being a platform for others to share their thoughts, stories. Because if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's seeing driven, talented, and inspiring individuals follow their dreams, no matter what obstacles are in their way. And I know a thing or two about that. Welcome to the DJ Bob Show. I'm DJ Bob. Roll it. Dude, you wrote my childhood is what our next guest tells us that people tell him on a regular basis. Stu Krieger is here, and like I just said, he wrote your childhood. From Smart House to Xenon on Disney to The Land Before Time, he's done it all. We talk all about those projects and his brilliant new book, Raft and Everything in Between. This is a great one. Enjoy this episode. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm so excited to chat with you. Well, I am so excited to be here with you. So, for those that don't know you, could you kind of introduce yourself and give a little bit of an elevator pitch of who you are and what you've done? Absolutely. So, I am Stu Krieger. I had a film and television writing career for 30 years before I became a full-time professor currently at the University of California, Riverside, where I teach film and television writing and a couple of classes about the business of the business. And during my entertainment career, probably my best known credit is The Land Before Time. I was the screenwriter of the original Land Before Time for producers Spielberg and Lucas. Uh, I did the Emmy-winning miniseries A Year in the Life and 12 Disney Channel original movies, including the three Xenon movies, Smart House, Gotta Kick It Up, Cowbells, True Confessions, and several more. And while I have been in full-time academia, I have started writing books because they're much more conducive to the academic life than being in film and television. And I have a new novel called Raft that came out three weeks ago that I'm very excited to talk to you more about later in our interview. What is something that you wish people knew about you and what you do? I think the most important thing is, you know, it's kind of advice for writers that I also talk to my students about quite a bit, which is have something to say, have stories you want to tell and have a point of view. And one of the things that I'm very proud of with my career now is a lot of it was in family entertainment. And when I made the turn into family entertainment, it was because I had my own kids and I thought a lot of what I was seeing really talked down to them. It was a lot about stupid, incompetent dads, which I was not, and other things. And so one of the things now, being able to look back on it, is as a professor, at least once a quarter, if not more often, I'll have one of my students come into my office during office hours and say, I just wanted to say hello because, dude, you wrote my childhood. And that's a really, really wonderful thing to hear. And let's talk a bit about that because at its core... All of your films for families have a little bit of inclusion within them. Because I'm all about diversity and inclusion. I myself have cerebral palsy and I'm in a wheelchair. And something like True Confession can really set the bar high for representation. So I want to know... Is that a conscious thing with everything you do to have a little bit of inclusion baked into it? Because that's pretty much what it seems like to me. 
Yeah, no, it was very, very much a conscious choice because as I said, you know, as a parent myself, as watching my kids and how much modeling came from the films and television shows they were watching, it was like, I wanted them to have a wider view of the world. I wanted them to be exposed to things that were not necessarily in front of them day to day. And one of the things that another, (laughs) one of the things I guess that I'm proud of about the whole canon of my work at this point is those efforts in terms of having more diverse cast tackling subjects that weren't often things that were necessarily part of family entertainment feels like it was a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, now the whole idea of representation is so much at the forefront and back 25, 30 years ago when I was doing it, that really wasn't as much of a mission, but it was something that was always important to me. Because something like true confessions, as a as a young kid, seeing that I'm 28, it's it's like I saw myself or someone like myself on screen. Because a little background on me, when I went to school for the first time, it was just uh, it was just for kids with disabilities. I went to one of those, you know, special, for lack of a better term, schools. So to see somebody in a similar predicament to, say, one of my friends in on TV was such a big deal. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the other thing that I've heard from folks along the way is I have a brother with special needs. I have a sister. And for us as a family to see that represented was so important. And I had a former student a couple of years ago who said, you know, my dad and I watched that movie together and we were both crying because it was so much my brother's story that we had never seen before. And, you know, all of those things are really, really important and really touching to me that they have that kind of impact and resonance. And once you realize that, the other thing I'm always saying to my students is you really need to take responsibility for the work you're putting into the world. And I feel like, you know, one of the recurring themes for me, and it's true again in my new novel, Raft, that I mentioned, is it's about light. It's about optimism. It's about there are difficulties in life. There are challenges. There are things that are you going to be presented with. It's not about the challenges you're given. It's about how you respond to them. And that's something that I think has been a recurring theme in my work as well. I speak to that on such a deep level because I could be such a curmudgeon for <laughs> yeah. all I have to deal with. But, you know... This all started because, you know, I couldn't really play outside as a kid. So TV and radio and music were my friends. And I latched on to things way more because I had all this time to explore it. Sure. And, And then 13 years ago, I started this podcast when no one was doing it. Yeah. Well, and what, you know, one of the things that I love about what you said is so much of that is when you realize it is a choice. I can be the victim or I can be somebody that's going to rise above the challenges I've given, but it's just so much more of an enjoyable and exciting life once you make that choice, as opposed to I'm going to wallow in whatever I've been handed and not be able to rise above it. So I love hearing you say that. And that cannot decay. I don't have hard days. I do. Everybody does. Yep. But it's how you come back from that hard day and kind of flip it around and kind of have a new look on, have a new outlook on it. 100%. And, and acknowledging it's okay to have crappy days, you know, that yeah. <laughs> you, you don't have to get stuck there, but you also don't have to blow by them. You're allowed to indulge yourself and say, that was a crappy day, but I'm moving on. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up to you is Smart House. I love Smart House so much. <laughs> it is iconic cinema to most people, including myself. Um, so when that comes across your desk, what is the process? Like, what did you do? They say we want to. We want you to write a decom about this, or. A movie? Like, where did you have it? Tell me the story. Yeah. So what happened, as I mentioned, ultimately I did a dozen DCOMs, and each one of them had a little bit of a different path to the screen. 
So Smart House was a project that when I came onto it, it was already in development at Disney. So the basic concept of it, the basic structure of the Smart House and then the artificial intelligence going bad, all of that was already in place. But what they said to me at the time is I had done a couple of movies for them already. And they said, we kind of feel like a little bit of the heart and the human story and the connection of the family. Those are the elements that we're not fully happy with. And then having a little bit more fun of the technology. So here's the basic draft. Here's a list of all the things that we don't quite feel are all the way to where they could get. Here's what we're interested in. Give it a read. Come back in and pitch your take on how you would approach the rewrite on the script. And so one of the other things that's kind of a badge of honor for me is on the dozen Disney Channel movies I did, I was either the only writer or the last writer. And if you're the last writer, it means it was your draft that got the green green light to production. And that's what happened on Smart House. So ultimately, I think once I came on board, I ended up doing about three or four drafts. You know, you go back and forth with studio notes. And then when the director comes on board, they've got notes. But I stayed with it all the way through production with LeVar Burton directing, and he was wonderful. And one of the great things that never gets old when you get to do this for a living is the first day you walk onto a set and things that were just, you know, abstract in your imagination when you were writing, suddenly it's like, wow, I'm in the smart house. And I was able to take my daughter, who was about 10 at the time, and we walked through the whole thing, and there's the kitchen, and there's the blender, and there's the computer room where Pat lived. And it's just always really thrilling to see it come alive. So what is your proudest contribution to that film? Like, what are you most proud of that you put in there? Is there a joke? Is there a moment? Yeah. You know what's really interesting? And because kind of since I've become an academic, since the whole world of podcasts and interviews and tech magazines and everything have has exploded, probably about a year and a half or two years ago, I finally had to sit down and rewatch Smart House from beginning to end. Because what I say often is, you know, if you know Sunset Boulevard, the character of Norma Desmond, who was always mourning the end of her career and sitting at home in the dark watching her movies, that wasn't me, you know? So some of these films I hadn't seen in 20 years. And when I sat down to watch Smart House before another interview I was doing, I was really, really proud of the emotional core of it. And one of the yeah. And I was going to say, one of the things that really surprised me was at, when Ben is rude to um, Sarah, who designed the smart house, and he, you know, he, she's over for dinner with the dad, and Ben is really insulting about it, and he runs up to his room and slams the door, and dad comes up to confront him. And that fight that they have was really real in a way that I didn't even remember it being when, you know, Ben's moaning about, I don't want mom replaced, and you're going to forget her, and then the dad yells back at him, you know, you're not the only one who lost somebody and they really have to confront that moment. I had a moment of like, damn, you know, I don't remember it being kind of that raw. And I'm kind of amazed that Disney Channel let me do that because they were always so gentle with, you know, dealing with emotional issues. So I'm really proud of that. One of my favorite moments from the film is because I'm such a pop culture kind of sure I know all of the the references in it is the idea of the early TV mom. Yeah. And that whole, how Pat, you know, turns into the early TV mom. <laughs> I love that so much. So was that. <laughs> and in there initially, or was that you? No, that was something I did add to it. And, and I also, love that. <laughs> and also I'm very proud of it as well, because, you know, again, when you, when you are brought projects like this, for me, I am always been a character driven writer. So the story doesn't work for me if I don't know who the characters are and what they want and what they're willing to do. And so when I was thinking about for Pat, she's, you know, a piece of technology. If she had to learn about motherhood, where would she go? She would go to other technology. She would, you know, she's not going to go to the library and look it up. And so the concept of she would explore other moms, and her way to find that would be through television. And I just love how there's a whole channel designated to mothers. I just think <laughs> that whole concept is hilarious because it's so on the nose. Yeah. That uh, 
it makes it makes for an interesting film. And like I what I love about Smart House specifically is that nobody nobody in that family is perfect. Right. Everybody is so grounded and so, there's when I talk to a lot of people in children's entertainment, they say they say to me, when you get to do something a little bit weightier, you take the opportunity and grab it because it doesn't happen that often. Yep. So like when you get to, you know, write the emotional moments and watching it back, you have to kind of pat yourself on the back. Not self-indulgently, but like, wow, I, I, this is better than I remember. This is something I'm proud of. This. The whole father-son thing, and the, the mother being gone, that helped millions of kids that were going through similar things. Yeah, and, and that very much is something that now, like I said, when I look at the body of work and have had to go back and review it for some of the press I've been doing and all of that, it feels really good to be proud of that work. And and also, it feels pretty timeless to me. And one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years with the advent of you know Disney Plus and the streaming service is all those movies are really back into play. And now that I've been teaching for 20 years, I'm getting emails and, and you know, reach outs from former students and often it's them sitting on a couch with their children now and going, look what we watched last night or look, you know, and, and the fact that it's now going to the third or fourth generation who are still responding and still watching. And I have the objective metric of watching my residuals increase in the last couple of years because the movies are back in play in a regular rotation. And the fact that it has had this life is, is one of the things that's been really surprising, but also incredibly emotionally gratifying to me that, these things are living on and finding a new generation. Well, again, thank you for your work and thank you for creating content for kids that is beyond um, blonde hair, blue eyes. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's real. It's, there's so much weight to what the work you do. And this new book, Raft, is a prime example of that. Like, there's a lot of weight, but there's a lot of heartwarming moments. So, could you tell us a bit about your new book? Yeah. Have you had the chance to read it? Yeah, I did. Oh, very cool. All right. So, I'm shamelessly going to put in a plug for, if you feel like throwing a, re a review up on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, please do. Uh, that's phenomenally helpful to push it out into the world. But again, one of the things I'm very proud of with it, when the publisher first approached me, they said, we laughed on every page and we cried at the end. And I went, okay, I did my job. You know, that, that was really what I set out to do. And part of it with this book in particular, should I give a very brief summary for your listeners? Sure, sure. Okay. It's the story of children's book author Clark Whitaker, who's about to turn 50. He's facing a midlife crisis connected to the fact that he's starting to feel like Everything in his life moving forward is going to be about loss, and he's not quite ready to be at that point in his life. He has two teenage kids. One of them is going to be leaving for college in the fall. He and his wife get into a giant fight, and he wakes up the next morning, and he's a penguin. And that change is just the manifestation of this particular man's midlife crisis. So when the publisher approached, I mean, when I approached them, my pitch was, some men leave their wives for a younger woman. Some buy a sports car. Some take up mountain biking. Clark Whitaker turned into a penguin. And thematically, it's very much back to what we were talking about earlier of life throws things at you. It's not about that. It's about how you're going to respond. Mm -hmm. So the book is told through the four perspectives. Each member of the family, Clark, his wife, his son, and his daughter take turns narrating various chapters, telling the story of what happened to dad and the adventures that ensued because of his transformation. So with that, one of the things that I wanted to talk about with the book is perspective in a family that when you go through these things, everybody has a different point of view on what's happening, but each of those points of view is equally legitimate 
equally profound, equally should be taken seriously and listened to. And then together you heal as a family and you figure out solutions and you move forward. What I what I especially loved about it, and I'm not going to spoil too much because I want <laughs> people to read it because it's absolutely wonderful, um, is that whenever there's a difficult, whenever there's a difficult moment or there's a there's a scene of struggle or trial, there's always a joke after. <laughs> there's always a TV term and a movie term, there's always a button to sort of end it. And, but you feel connected because that's how life is. You go through something and then you find a way to maybe smile about it or laugh about it later. If you're lucky, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things to the point you were making is, when I had finished the first three chapters, I gave it to my daughter to read. She's now 35 years old and a married woman. And she read it and she called me and she said, you know, I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings, dad. But but Clark, who's the father, she said, Clark is kind of a jerk. And I said, you actually just gave me the best compliment you possibly could have given me. Because if he's not at the beginning of the book, where does he grow? How does he change? How does he learn from this experience? And I said, you know, if you said at the end of the first three chapters, I love this guy. He's such a great dad. He's so perfect. There's no story. And so, you know, the point you just made about each of the characters has to have the flaws that make them human and make them real so that this journey is about learning and growing and maturing rather than just we meet a character in one place and he's in the exact same place at the end of the story. That's not interesting. I literally see the joy in your face. And talking about this project. So is this your proudest work today? Because this seems something really special to you. Like, Yeah, it is because it's very personal in the sense of so much of what, aside from the fact that I can promise you I actually never have turned into a penguin. Um, but Well, other, good. Well, uh, well, good. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, the core relationships. This is another really great compliment I got in the last couple of weeks is my wife has been in a memoir writing class herself for the last 20 plus years. And one of the women in that group called and said, I read the book. I love the book. I won't tell anybody, but I know that you, Hillary, my wife, must have written the Julia chapters because it was so perfectly your voice. You had to have written those chapters. And she said, no, Stu just knows me. You know, we've been married for 42 years. And and, you know, so, but the fact that she felt like I had so authentically captured that voice and that attitude and that, you know, like I said, each character needs to have a different point of view. So there are things to talk about. There are things to grapple with and getting the feedback now that people feel like I succeeded in that and I created four very distinct characters with distinct voices. I'm very proud of that. I couldn't put it down. I could not. Put it down. <laughs> That's exciting. It was so, because it was so welcome into the world of your previous work. Although, this, this book at times is a little edgier than a DCOM. It's in that same, it's got the same heart. And it's got the same sort of sensibility. And I really think... I urge people to check it out when they're done listening to this. It's so good. <laughs> well, I so appreciate that. And and again, you know, one of the things that the publisher said when they picked it up also was they really feel like coming out of COVID, coming out of some of the trauma of the last couple of years, people are so anxious for a laugh and anxious for something positive and affirmative. And it's one of the challenges right now in the current landscape of, you know, I've had an incredibly beautiful groundswell of support from friends and family. We had an in at the house book party yesterday that 70 people showed up to and people were buying books and people had already bought them, brought their copies to be signed. And all of that's really exciting. But then now the challenge is how do you push it out to the wider world? How do you make sure people discover it? And it really is just the old fashioned drumbeat of you tell a friend who tells a friend who tells a friend and hopefully the world finds it. Because I do feel like 
one of the things that I'm very excited about is I do think the audience is there. They just have to be aware it exists. Totally. And where can people check it out? Where can people find it? Uh, it is available at most booksellers, if not in person on their websites, but Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Pipevine Press is the publishers, and you can get it directly from them. The other thing that happened, because one of the things you mentioned was what the publishers had initially said for all time, I had studiously and vociferously avoided all social media. And then when they wanted to pick the book up about 10 months ago, they said, we really feel like the audience for this book is the audience that grew up on your movies and are now young adults and parents themselves, but you have to reach them and social media is where they live. So what I was able to do, I am currently on TikTok and am, uh, Instagram. You can find me at both of those, just at Stu Krieger. And those accounts, we've been running little short clips about my career, about the movies, behind the scenes, tips and tidbits. And like I said, that all happened because they, the publishers were saying, you got to find those people and you got to let them know about the book. So that's what we're doing. And you are, you are a master at the TikTok scene. I love it. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not on TikTok. I just go on for you. Love that. I love that. Well, I will tell you this because it they deserve credit is the only way this has happened is I have had three student interns and my daughter all working on, they do all of the posting. They do all of the, they'll call me up and go, we need you to shoot this for that. We have this idea about that. Uh, my current intern, Paul Ingoldsby, is doing an amazing job. If you saw the most recent one about finishing the book and then having everybody flash their covers, um, that was a concept that Paul came up with. And we've got a series of other things in the pipeline that we're doing. But talk about it takes a village. I mean, this is, that it's, it's such a scary world to me that I could not be doing it without the young interns who live in that world and know what I'm supposed to be doing. So I've got, I've got to, you know, as a journalist for over 13 years, I ask the hard-hitting questions. Yep. So do you think that Nick Cooper from Smart House would turn into a penguin considering all he's going through? <laughs> it could happen. Because similar energy. <laughs> yep. So... Like I said when we started this conversation, our podcast is very much a conversation. It's very back and forth. We're just talking. We're hanging out. So do you have any questions for me about my work and what I do in my life? Is there anything that you'd like to know after talking to me for a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And one of which is you said the podcast has been around for 13 years? Yep. Yep. So 13, 13 years. You are a bit of a pioneer in terms of that was not a widely popular format back in the day. So how, what was your inspiration for starting the podcast? My inspiration for starting the podcast was not starting a podcast. Initially, it was a live radio show with callings for four hours, five days a week. And then I realized because of my physical limitations you know, having to run all the equipment and run all the gear, I can't do that. Because by the end of it, you would think I was hungover. Like yeah. it was, I it was too physically taxing for me. Sure. So then, so then, I found the medium of podcasting in. I would say about a couple months into the run, and then. We've been podcasting steadily for that long, and a lot of the episodes from the early days are not available anymore. Thank God. <laughs> thanks to TikTok. <laughs> thanks to um, Testosterone and other things. They don't need to hear 15-year-old me screaming into a microphone. But <laughs> I, you know, because I've had to because of living with cerebral palsy, I've had to adapt my entire I've had to adapt my entire life. Sure. So adapting to a new medium or a new style and really finding my voice within the medium helped me 
Um, And I can't believe it's been 13 years and I can't believe that I've gotten to speak with idols of mine, creative, creative people that I find fascinating, you know, just creating this brand for myself. You know, I started this podcast the summer before my freshman year of high school. And wow. one of one of the common questions I would get from teachers is who set this up for you? Who yeah. did this for you? Because they didn't think they thought it was some organization that did it, like sort of like a make a wish kind of thing because I was disabled. And it's like I did it. Yeah. But I just hate the common misconception of just because someone is physically limited doesn't doesn't mean that they can't create. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm sure you get people that talk louder to you, assuming that that's going to help. Just you know, all the condescending things. Oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I very 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 much admire everything that you've done, and I have a selfish follow up question, which is. How do you feel that you've been able to kind of push this out to a wider audience? What are some of the stuff you've employed to make sure that the podcast gets discovered? I, one of the things that I try to do is I try not to make it a disability centric podcast. Sure. Because I'm not the poster child for cerebral palsy. I don't intend to be the poster child, but but here's something that I say to people in the industry all the time. The problem is when people hear my critique about their work or let's say if they made a, a joke about someone with a disability, I'm not asking you to walk into the office the next day and change your script. Or rewrite your next script because of something that I referenced a day before. But if I could be in your mind the next time a disability-related situation comes up in your writing, then I've done my job. Yep. Yeah, I, I had a student who just graduated two years ago with cerebral palsy also. And he was a playwright and a brilliant playwright. And one of his works got turned into a film that one of my fellow professors ended up directing and it's called the anxiety of laughing and was on the film festival circuit and did really well. But Andrew's thing, not dissimilar to what you're talking about is his work always had characters with disabilities in it, but it was often not what the piece was about. So he wrote this wonderful superhero story that one of the characters had CP. He did one of, it was kind of like a, bad Santa version of a character that despite the fact that he had CP, he was an asshole. And so it, part of what his Andrew's mission with that was, you know, it doesn't mean we're saints because we have a disability. It means we're human beings and trying to create that representation that showed the humanity and showed everything you're saying about both the light and dark and the three dimensions, as opposed to being defined by I have CP, I think is such a wonderful and important mission just to make people aware of all the dimensions and not just being defined by the illness. That is why I, you know, I strongly, I did an interview once and I, I kept their question in where I said, um, I said, do you have any questions for me? Just like I asked you. And then they asked me, so what is, your disorder. Yeah. And I'm like, first of all, let me stop you there. It's not a disorder. Like most people wouldn't stop and correct. Yep. But I felt the need to do that because in that moment, they needed to be educated. Yep. Not attacked, not singled out, but educated. Yep. And if I can educate at least one person with the work that I do while making them smile and laugh, 
then I've done everything I can do. That's great. And I was so excited to talk to you because not only not only about your work, but I knew that we would hit it off right away. <laughs> I watched you in other interviews and I just feel like there are certain people that get what I'm trying to do without meeting me. Yeah. And I feel like you got it right away. Well, thank you. Because I think, you know, one of the things that seems to be lacking in so much of the discourse these days is just empathy, just the ability to take a moment, take a breath, flip the script, put yourself in those other shoes and just look at, you know, how does this, what are the challenges? What are the things you have to navigate? And, you know, I had colon cancer two years ago and now have a colostomy bag, which is its own giant thing in terms of the amount of time and attention it takes, but it is not something that I've allowed to define me. It's not something that dictates how I go through my day and everything I was doing before the illness in terms of, you know, yoga every morning and swimming during the day when I can and teaching my three-hour classes. All of that was a conscious choice of, I'm going to opt for the treatment that's going to allow me to keep the life I have, but I'm also going to make really, you know, I'm not going to be in denial of it. I'm not going to answer, not answer questions when people ask, but it's also not going to define who I am. And again, as we were saying previously, it's a choice. So I'm curious, do you have any questions in regards to my disability? Because I'm here, I want to, if there's anything you want to know, I'm an open book. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, again, I don't want to make mass generalizations, but I think so much of my education directly related to CP was having Andrew as a student for three years and because of the work he did and because of the challenges he faced and because of the conversations we had. And I also have a very good childhood friend whose dad had CP when we were growing up. So for me, it is not something I'm not familiar with, but I'm also very, very happy for anything else you would like to share related to how you've had to navigate your life. Well, there's something that I'd like to share and I am, I'm, I'm sure you can empathize with this and it's, one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. Just because one person likes something or does something doesn't mean that is the blanket answer for somebody with CP. Sure. For example, and I've told this story ad nauseum on this podcast, but for my listeners, I'm sorry, but I feel like it's integral. So I'll tell you. When I was in high school, I joined a bowling league. And it was a bowling league for people with all different types of disabilities. And I was fine with that. But I didn't really connect with them. Because you, you see my, my intellect. I'm smart. I'm <laughs> like, I know... I'm just not in their world. And it was a lot of like nonverbal folk. And I'm an advocate for people like that. But when, so this woman comes up to me with her nonverbal daughter and she says to me, Bobby, do you want to join a group where we sing songs and finger paint and tell stories? And I'm just like, no. <laughs> Thank you. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not... Yeah, absolutely. Just because your daughter finds enjoyment in that, doesn't... She generalized. Yeah. And that, like, when people... People see the wheelchair as a sign of intelligence. Yeah. They talk down to us. They baby us. Yeah. I mean, my my fiance is visually impaired, and she goes through her own challenges, and she hates when people talk down to her because people think that a wheelchair, a physical object, 
And a visual impairment is a sign of intelligence. Yeah. And that shows me that we are not where we need to be in society. Entertainment is doing better at representation, but there still needs to be more diverse voices. Yeah, and I think also a lot of that is just people are so innately uncomfortable, and then the overcompensation is part of, am I going to say something wrong? Am I going to be, you know, just all of that starts spinning with, I've watched it happen with folks. You know, I had a cousin who was deaf and, same thing of people coming up and shouting in his face. And it's like, you know what? That's not going to help. He, he has his hearing aids. He's very adept as a lip reader. You yelling in his face is not going to help. But I think it always comes from that kind of just freaked out uncomfortableness as opposed to, again, what I said earlier, take a breath. You're meeting a human being with multiple dimensions. Embrace all of them and calm down. You know, you and I are just having a conversation. That's, that's all. Yep. And that's all I'm here to do. So I want to talk to you about The Land Before Time briefly because it was an iconic film for me because it didn't necessarily have a character with a disability, but it had a character who was essentially an outcast. And the whole group were different, but they accepted each other. And that was the beautiful thing. Now, did you expect there to be like 16 of those after you wrote the first one or something like that? Absolutely not. No, the the life of that in particular has been absolutely stunning to me. And, you know, when I mentioned earlier about putting a toe into the social media waters, one of the, I think it was the second video we did on TikTok was about People were always asking me of how come everybody had a dinosaur name, but Sarah was Sarah. And my kind of snarky response was, pay attention, people. She was C-E-R-A because she was a triceratops. Her name was every bit as much a dinosaur name as the rest of them. And that video went up and within 48 hours, it had 2.8 million views. And I was like, what just happened? (laughs) But, But all of the back and forth of all the comments and everybody like, I always knew that. I had closed captions. I knew it. And then other people like, oh, my God, you just blew my mind. My life has changed forever. But but just all of the response to that was stunning to me in terms of the reach of it in a way that I had no ability to be aware of prior to that. So it has been a phenomenon. I I mean, I love that film and I love the, the animation and I just love how I love how the world is built and the writing plays a big part in it so thank you you. when you're involved in something like that when do you realize not only is it popular but when do you realize the impact of it you know it's very much true for me that i the way show business is designed you are never a success when you're in it no matter who you are and I have legions of stories about, you know, big, big people saying, I'm never going to work again. Or, the, oh, my God, that was probably my last job or all of those things, because it's all about what are you doing next? And along the way, I had many projects that were in development with big name people that blew up for one reason or another. Many of them never got made for various reasons. So mentally, you are never a success. And then when I started teaching and the thing I said earlier about folks coming in and go, dude, you wrote my childhood and then all the things that have happened with streaming and social media and all the rest of it. Just that's the first time I was aware. I'm like, damn, you know, these things not only have had life and legs and are continuing to impact people, but people go out of their way. Students that, you know, I, I teach in the department of theater, film and digital production, but I'll have history majors. They'll say, somebody told me that you were teaching here. And I can't believe the guy who wrote land before time is, a professor, I just had to come by and say hi. You, you know, just all of that is quite wonderful and overwhelming about just the love that comes back at you in a way that I had no idea. Well, I will say this: when I'm having a rough day or when I'm really struggling physically, I have a very short list of comfort films yeah. and. Smart House and The Land Before Time 
are on that list. That's really wonderful to hear. And that cannot just because you're here. Yeah. It, <laughs> it it really because when when I watch something familiar, something that I know what's gonna happen, it relieves anxiety. It like it helps me through whatever might be going going on that day or going through my head that day. And the impact of your work on many lives, like something like gotta kick it up, like dealing with, you know, um, an unstable relationship or stuff like that. Like you're dealing with some deep stuff in a, bite-sized package, but it's so meaningful. Well, and one of the things that was always very important to me, aside from some of the stuff I've already mentioned, is just kids are smart. You don't need to talk down to them. You don't need to soft coat things. You don't need to couch it in, you know, just sugarcoating things that they, one of the things I often got in arguments with Disney Channel about, and what was interesting is only one of the executives I dealt with even had children. And they would, you know, kind of try to soften things or try to dumb down the language or whatever it was. And I would always say, I would rather have a kid turn to their parent and go, what did that mean? Or why are they reacting that way? Or what's that about? And get that conversation going rather than assume they're not going to understand or assume they're not going to know what that means. And, and that was one of the things that was always very, very important to me. I much prefer to see children reach up than bend down. So... I want to talk to you about standards and practices. What were some of the things that you couldn't do or say within your decoms? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. One of the things that was always hilarious to me, and it finally started to change toward the end of my time there. And I think, you know, a lot of the movies that happened after I was gone, I haven't seen, so I can't comment. But there was this <laughs> always amusing thing to me at Disney Channel they were happier if you killed a parent than if you had divorced parents. And it was always so puzzling to me when you would talk about, you know, what the national divorce rate was. And a lot of kids are dealing with this and it would be helpful. And uh, I'm not sure if you know my movie Monkey Trouble. But one oh, yeah. The, one of the main reasons that movie exists is the director of it, Franco Amori. Uh, he was separated from the mother of his child and she had a new Paramore and they had children together and they were a blended family that functioned. And he said, part of what I want to do with monkey trouble is I want to show you can be divorced and still have a civil relationship. You can get along with the new partner. You can be a family in a different configuration. And that was something that was really, really difficult to do at Disney. And then the other thing is even when they movies like with Xenon and, you know, when you're dealing with teenagers, they were really freaked out about anything that spoke to real romance. I mean, we're not even getting anywhere near sex. I'm just talking about even romance. The ki kisses had to be so chaste and everything had to be really precious in a way that was like, yeah, you know, I think we can push this a little bit when we're dealing with teenagers. And then, like I said, I think in the last couple of years, they've loosened those reins a tiny bit, but not so much during my time. So I, I've loved our conversation today. And when I have the conversations, I don't intend to make an impact on the person on the other end. I just feel like we're just having a conversation, but I'm curious to know, is there anything that I've taught you today during our time together? Or what yeah, have you taken it, away from this? It, it is just your beautiful, wonderful heart and your humanity and, and you know, wanting to go beyond boundaries that other people are setting for you and pushing past limits that might be imposed on you and just deciding, I know what I want, I'm going for it. And, and that's something, disability or no disability, I just admire everybody and especially young people because I think there's so many more challenges for you guys these days than I was faced with at that age and just deciding I'm setting my sights, I got goals, I've got things I'm going to do and I'm doing it. I don't need permission. I don't need, you know, somebody doing it for me. I'm doing it. And I very much admire that about everything you're doing. So what are you up to currently? What's happening? 
most of the energy I'm I'm in the throes for two and a half hours before I got on the call with you, I was reading finals for my class that just finished last week. So once I get that done at the end of this week, I am off until January because I'm on a fall sabbatical and the fall sabbatical is designed to hopefully be a book tour promoting raft. So that's where the immediate time and energy is going to be. Well, I, well I'm in New York right now, but I will be in LA in the fall. So if you want to meet up, we could definitely do that. Great. Keep me posted. Absolutely. So and- pe- people could find you on TikTok and on Instagram but what are those handles again, just in case? Just simply at Stu Krieger. Perfect. So Krieger is K-R-I-E-G-E-R. And you can find, as I said, you can find Raft at barnesandnoble.com, Pipevine Press, and Amazon. And I think you will enjoy it. So my final question for you is, what is, to you, the funniest line You've written for any decom. <laughs> That's a very tough, good, tough question. Um, I think it's not specifically a line, but it is something that I'm really proud of, which is all of the slang in the three Xenon movies is stuff that I invented. And so I have been in public and hearing somebody go by and go see the Slapidus. <laughs> it's kind of like, damn, you know, that caught on. Um, and where that sprang, all of the slang in those movies came from two things that I was thinking about when I first got the concept of what the movie was going to be was this is a kid who grew up on the space station. So she knows astronomical things that she's seen out her window and she knows technology. And so everything is either a computer term or a space term. So Cetus Lapidus came from Cetus is a constellation. I wanted some stupid word to rhyme with it, made up Lapidus. That's where Cetus Lapidus came from. And when she's talking about it's a big deal major, a big deal minor, you know, that's Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. So if you go back and look at those movies, all the slang was something that sprang from either technology or the cosmos, because that's what Xenon knew. Well, thank you so much, Stu. I hope we could chat again. Thank you, Bob. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. This has been absolutely wonderful. I'll talk to you again soon. All righty, take care. Thanks for hanging out with us at the DJ Bob Show. If you like this episode, drop us a line at djbobrunkel at gmail.com. That's djbobrunkel at gmail.com. Let us know what you liked most about this episode and what other guests we should have on the DJ Bob Show. Thanks so much again for hanging out with us. This is Nate Beagle, your humble announcer.